0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, pastor of the Westminster Church and moderator of these forums, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. No one is better prepared to speak to the theme of the Town Hall Forum than today's speaker, one of Latin America's most celebrated writers and a person of conscience, Isabel Allende. Born in Lima, Peru, where her father served as a Chilean diplomat, Ms. Allende spent her adolescence in Bolivia, Europe, and the Middle East. She returned to Chile to become a journalist for television and newsreels, as well as a writer for a feminist magazine and a children's magazine. Her life changed abruptly on September 11, 1973 with the assassination of her uncle and godfather, Salvador Allende, the president of Chile. She remained in Chile for several months after her uncle's assassination as part of the opposition to the Pinochet regime. But when her efforts clearly jeopardized her safety, she escaped with her family to Venezuela. Ms. Allende is best known as a novelist. She is the author of three international bestsellers, a film based on her first novel, The House of the Spirits, is soon to be released. That first novel, written in 1981, began as a letter to her grandfather. She wrote it in Caracas, and as she put it, she wrote it to recover everything I had lost, my home, my country, the memories of my family. Ms. Allende now lives in California. Her latest novel, The Infinite Plan, brings her unique voice as an epic storyteller to the North American scene. Her topic today is Latin America, romance and reality. Please join me in welcoming to the town hall forum, Ms. Isabel Allende.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. It's wonderful to be speaking in a church. I feel really powerful. Must be great to be a preacher. Thank you for this invitation. It is a rare pleasure to be among the crazy people who read we belong to an endangered species some of us would rather be in bed with our favorite book than in bed with our favorite movie star but don't worry most probably you will never have to make that choice we the book addicts are all united by the same secret vice our love of stories In public, we pretend to be intellectuals, interested only on the highest literary devices. But here, among us, we can be honest. We are not much better than the common soap opera lover. But there's nothing to be ashamed of. We are not the only ones. In fact, mankind has been trapped in the webs of storytelling since our hairy great-grandparents sat around the fire in the long winters of the Stone Age. I have had an adventurous life. I have survived three revolutions, one marine disembarkment, four major earthquakes, a military coup, and Mexican food. (laughs) Violence seems to follow me everywhere. In every country where I have been, something dramatic has happened. When I moved to the United States, I thought my fate would change but in six years, I have been in two earthquakes, a hurricane, the Berkeley fires, a holdup, and war in the Middle East, not to mention my stepson. (laughs) However, the most dangerous escape was not from a political turmoil or a geological catastrophe. It was from an attack of the pygmies. In the late 70s, I was working in Venezuela in a school for nasty brats. Here, you call them children with learning disabilities, I think. (laughs) One day, a teacher didn't show up, and I was sent to watch a class. I found myself locked in a room with 15 hyperactive, untamed midgets, yelling, spitting, smashing the furniture on each other's heads. After several minutes trying to put order in that nightmare, I finally collapsed. As soon as the cannibals perceived my defeat, they moved forward. (laughs) I closed my eyes and mumbled a prayer. For once, my guardian angel was alert, and at that moment, the door opened and a black, old, cleaning lady entered with a broom and a bucket. One glance was enough for her to realize that the beasts were on the verge of devouring me. She then spoke with a clear voice, without shouting or anything. She said, once upon a time. Immediately, there was a strange stillness in the air. She repeated those four magic words, once upon a time. She had them. The horrible creatures sat down in total silence as she began to tell them a story. That day, I decided I wanted that kind of power. Or maybe I not decided at all. Maybe the storytelling was in my genes. It came from my mother and my grandmother and all the women in my family telling stories in the kitchen. The truth is that I've been doing it since I learned to speak. For four decades, I was called a liar. Now that I make a living with these lies, I'm called a narrator. When I was a kid, I invented long and truculent plots that filled my brother's dreams with nightmares and their days with terror. (laughs) Later, my children suffered the same fate. Yes, I have been telling stories all my life, but only recently I'm aware of the power of storytelling. Once upon a time, you see, there is silence in this room. Once upon a time, there was a benevolent princess who was forced to exile by a cruel general who usurped her throne. She escaped to another kingdom ruled by a bachelor monarch who was contemplating marriage and wanted someone of blue blood and a pure heart. The princess rang the bell of the palace and asked to be received. Although she looked like a homeless, in fact she was a homeless, There was such dignity in her manner that the guards led her to the presence of the king. She told him her story. He was very impressed by her sufferings and most of all by her breasts, two ripe cantaloupes. (laughs) He thought that she would make a splendid queen, but first he needed to be sure that she was of royal descent and a virgin. Men don't like to be compared. With that in mind, he offered her asylum. That night, he put a little box under her mattress and he watched her through a hole in the wall. All night, she couldn't sleep because her noble butt was used only to feathers and the box hurt her. In exasperation, at dawn, she pushed the mattress aside, she was a strong broad, and found the box. She opened it extracted a rubber balloon and pondered it, trying to figure out what it was. Finally, she blew it up and it took the shape of an elongated ribbed lubricated sausage, the use for which she could not even imagine. (laughs) Seeing her perplexity, the king was totally convinced of her blue blood and her innocent heart. He kneeled at her feet and asked her to marry him. She wanted to know how he had proven her pedigree and he made the mistake of telling her. Will you be my beloved queen? He begged still on his knees, staring at the cantaloupes. No way, the princess replied. Why would I marry a weirdo social freak like you who peeks through a hole in the wall? Yeah. You want to know what happened next, don't you? (laughs) You all want to know the end of the story. But life is a never-ending tale. There is always something else in the next page that we need to know. Did the cantaloupe-breasted princess recover her kingdom? What happened with the cruel general? Was the bachelor king transformed into a frog? Those are the questions that normal people ask. The critics, however, would like to know if the mattress is some sort of symbol. (laughs) If all this nonsense is a metaphor, and if there is an influence of Garcia Marquez. To me, this is what fiction is about. Establish a complicity with the reader that would enable us to enter into another dimension of reality a bewitched dimension where sausages, cantaloupes, and frogs are not just food. Ah, the wonder of storytelling. It has accompanied humankind since the beginning of history. Some tales, memorized and repeated over and over again, describe our journey through life and death. We find them in immortal myths, raider, raider everywhere the garden of Eden, the virgin mother goddess, the deluge that cover the planet, the fight between good and evil, the battles against the dragons of our own soul. All the great plots have already been told innumerable times. We can only create new versions of the same ones. But every time a story is told again, it comes to life with the same charm of the first tale. When I was 13, we lived in Lebanon because my parents were diplomats. My stepfather had a locked closet where he kept his cigarettes, his booze, some Playboy magazines, and 1001 nights in four precious volumes in red leather and gold letters. The books were considered erotic, and young girls like myself were not supposed to read those sinful stories. At that time, Master and Johnson had not published their famous manual yet, and therefore the Western world had not discovered that women have sex. I found a way to open the closet, of course, smoke the cigarettes, stare at the playmate of the month, and read the red leather volumes. I never had time to finish a story. I could only open the book and read some passages looking for the dirty parts. But that was even better. Asari unveiled for me the multiple possibilities of the senses and of imagination. I like the patient craft of a long and complicated novel as much as the challenge of a short story, two very different genres. In a novel, you create a universe by adding details. It's like embroidering a tapestry with threads of many colors. A short story is like an arrow, you only have one shot. It needs the right direction, the perfect tension, the firm wrist of the archer. In a short story, you have no time and no space for mistakes, everything shows. If it doesn't have the right tone in the first sentence, forget it, it's useless to continue. If you work it too much, it loses that fresh wind that makes the reader's that makes the reader imagination fly. In a novel, the author needs patience, time, concentration, an eye for details. In short stories, one needs inspiration and good luck. Somebody once said that fiction is to the society what dreams are to the individual. At a personal level, we need dreams to unclog the mind. If we don't dream, we go mad. And as species, we need stories to interpret the collective spirit, to deal with our own common demons. Humanity has an insatiable need to explain itself, to explore its own mind and the invisible forces that rule the world. That is the secret of literature. There is a tremendous power in the written word, a power that is beyond the author and that often transcends his or her life. Like in all other forms of art, the power lies in the unique faculty to represent and interpret us. This power cannot be easily measured at the moment when a work is created. It takes a while, often years, and sometimes centuries to appreciate it. Only time can determine the artistic value of a book. Each civilization has understood the power of literature and, in different ways, has tried to use it. Fortunately, literature is a rebellious child, a wild animal that will not be tamed. Like dreams, it obeys its own rules. Very often, when it has defied authority and the prevailing morals, when it has denounced, protested, or searched for some forbidden truth, it has been savagely repressed. Repressed, yes, but not totally subdued. It has happened over and over. Galileo Galilei, forced by the Inquisition to admit on his knees that his theories on astronomy were heresies inspired by Satan. Salman Rushdie, who has been threatened by fanatic Muslims that have sworn to kill him for a novel that they consider insulting to the Prophet. And we don't have to go so far. In this country, in this very moment, many books are banned from public libraries and schools. Not pornographic or violent books only, but books on evolution and Marxism. Did you know that Alice Walker's writing is banned in some Christian fundamentalist schools? I have seen in the streets of Santiago in Chile in famous pyres where soldiers burned books that the military dictatorship considered subversive. It is difficult to convey the terror of that experience. Imagine the empty streets of the city under curfew at nightfall, where the echoes of gunfire and screams still resound. Imagine the people in their homes watching from behind the curtains and some strayed workers that try to hide in dark alleys. Imagine the arrival of the heavy military trucks, the jeeps and motorcycles, the officer yelling and the soldiers cursing while they pile hundreds of books in a jumble. They soak them with gasoline and destroy them in a shameful bonfire that rises to the sky in a column of smoke. Books don't burn easily. It takes them a long time to die. During those tragic 17 years of dictatorship in Chile, many writers had to live in exile. Others remained in silence. Some were imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Why so much brutality? Because there is an unwilling recognition of the power of literature. The oppressors could not appreciate it but they knew that there was a mysterious threat in those pages. Censorship and self-censorship were imposed. They tried very hard to hide reality behind the official rhetoric. However, the stories were not forgotten. The truth waited for the right time to be told. No violence, past or present, can repress the truth forever. Fiction can be a mirror where life is reflected. Sometimes we can't see and understand our own reality until it is reflected or recreated in that mirror. Often a book transcends the individual experience to interpret and perpetuate the feelings of a race, a time, an event. For a while in Europe and in the United States, literature became so intellectualized that good old storytelling was lost in an avalanche of difficult words, experimental forms, labyrinthic thoughts. Please don't misunderstand me. I have the greatest respect for the beauty and efficiency of language. And I believe that a story is memorable only when it challenges the mind. But in the last couple of decades, literature became so minimalist that there was no adjectives, no plot, no character, no ending. Man walks in the beach. He walks and walks and walks. And 30 pages later, he's still walking. I'm waiting for a shark to jump out of the water and swallow him up. Nothing of the sort ever happens. There are no sharks in minimalist literature. No sharks, no blood, no bandits, no kinky sex, nothing. Boring, to say the least. Fortunately, the fad is passing. Tony Morrison's Nobel Prize is a recognition to the rebirth of great narrative. Great storytellers are now taking by assault the world of literature in this country. Have you noticed that most of them belong to minority groups? African Americans, Asians, Latins, Native Americans, and most of them are women. These writers have the unique ability to listen to the secret voices in the air, and express them in their writing. They transgress the borders of reality. They explore the no man's land of imagination and they weave their tales to illuminate our minds and enchant our hearts. It looks as if WASP literature is declining, thanks God. I was brought up in the house of my grandparents, a large and somber place where the living walked hand in hand with the spirits that my clairvoyant grandmother summoned in her seances. I spent most of my time in the kitchen with the servants listening the gossiping of the maids, the spooky stories of the cook, and the tragic novels in the radio. Radio Novelas is the Spanish name for this passionate genre. Books also filled my days with wonder. Much later, TV soap operas replaced the kitchen stories and the radio novelas. I can't describe to you how important soap operas are in my culture. I know people who watch three or four per day. Women who feel that the fate of the protagonist is more important than that of their own children. Men who rush home from their jobs to watch them. On the day a popular soap opera ends, people are allowed to leave their jobs early. No one calls on the phone. It would be extremely rude. Weddings and funerals are postponed. The only thing that can compete with the last chapter of a soap opera is a soccer game or a visit of the Pope. I remember um, a famous series called Nino in the 60s. It was not the usual corny plot of a millionaire in love with a beautiful orphan with big breasts and no money. In this case, Nino was a butcher and his girlfriend was a teacher who had rather small boobs. After 275 agonizing chapters, they finally kissed. I saw the kiss nine times because upon request from the audience it was repeated on the next two days. It was on the news that evening and that year won the award for the most exciting image on TV. So they show it again a few more times. The kiss lasted approximately three minutes. Three breathtaking, unforgettable minutes. It is for me more real than any kiss that I have ever given or received. If I think of a kiss, I can only visualize Nino with his butcher's apron and his languid eyes. None of the men I have loved. (laughs) This is a good example of how fiction becomes part of our life. Many stories have achieved this miracle. There is an extraordinary power in storytelling. The writer uses his or her imagination and craft to invade the privacy of another person's mind, to persuade that person to read and continue reading to the very end, to surrender to the magic of literature. In fiction, everything is allowed, even the most extravagant devices, as long as the story is believable. Often journalists ask me, how much truth is there in my books? How much I have invented? I could swear that everything is true. I can no longer trace a line between reality and fantasy. To write, I have to lie, that is unavoidable. But if the writing comes from, a, from an honest heart, the lies may turn out to be true. My mother says that I'm a hopeless mythomaniac, that she can't recognize any of the anecdotes I tell of my youth when, there, when she was there, too. <laughs> Let me give you A small example, I was brought up to be a lady. Instead, I became a narrator. My family can't get over the disappointment. (laughs) In my country, in my generation, and in the social class to which my family belonged, a lady was a female creature as tall and fair as possible, cultivated, polite, pleasant, understated, and with good table manners. I had no raw material to be a lady. I was short, dark, and wild. During most of my childhood, I attended a gym where I was hung from the ceiling in a desperate attempt to stretch me. (laughs) It didn't work, as you can see. I recall being hanging head down, tied from the ankles. My mother says that that is absolutely not true. Nothing so cruel ever happened to me. I hanged from the neck with a very modern and comfortable device that protected me from instant death. (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with my memory. Maybe it's just that we don't see things the same way. Or maybe it's a question of point of view. Is the truth somewhere in between? Or are there many truths? I don't know. Maybe we should simply stick to poetic truth. In his book of embraces, Eduardo Galeano has a beautiful story. To me, it is a splendid metaphor of writing. There was an old and solitary man who spent most of his time in bed. There were rumors that he had a treasure hidden in his house. One day, some thieves broke in. They searched everywhere and found a chest in the cellar. They went off with it and when they opened it, they found it was filled with letters. They were the love letters the old man had received all over the course of his long life. The thieves were going to burn the letters, but they talked it over and finally decided to return them, one by one, one a week. Since then, Every Monday at noon, the old man would be waiting for the postman to appear. As soon as he saw him, he would run, and the postman, who knew all about it, held the letter in his hand. And even St. Peter could hear the beating of that heart, crazed with joy at receiving a message from a woman. Isn't this the playful substance of literature? an event transformed by poetic truth. Writers I like the good thieves. They take something that is real, like the letters, and by a trick of magic, they transform them into something totally different and fresh. In Galeano's story, the letters existed in the first place, but they were kept unread in a dark cellar. They were dead by the simple trick of mailing them back one by one one a week. The thieves gave new life to the letters and new illusions to the old man. That is what I like about writing, finding the hidden treasures, giving sparkle to the worn out events and invigorating the tired soul with imagination. Sometimes fiction is closer to reality than other forms of literature. A good story is not only the thrill of a plot, It is an invitation to explore beyond the appearance of things as opposed to trash fiction that offers an artificial and reassuring interpretation of reality. A good story tunes with the collective soul, transcends the individual anecdote and becomes part of the human experience. Great works of fiction wake up consciousness, bring people together, interpret, explain, denounce. Keep record, provoke change. But that is not the intention of the author in the first place. The writer's motivation is usually very simple. He or she has an overwhelming need to tell the story. There is nothing more to it, believe me. Storytelling is an organic experience, like motherhood or love with the perfect lover. It is a passion that determines your existence. It has been very healing for me because it allows me to exorcise some of my demons and transform most of my pains into strength. Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet, expressed this somehow pretentious but exhilarating desire of being part of every human experience. He wrote, For my life, give me all lives, give me all the sorrow of all the world, and I will transform it into hope. Give me all the joys, even the most secret, for if not, how will they be known? I must tell them, give me the daily struggle because these things are my song. Thank you very much.
0: I think we like you. Thank you for that very thoughtful and spirited presentation. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Those of you who are here in the auditorium and need to leave may do so at this time. The ushers will collect questions on the yellow cards from those of you who are present here in the hall. And those of you who are listening on the, in the radio audience may also submit questions by calling us at 332-3421. Today's speaker is Chilean author Isabel Allende, who has just spoken on the topic Latin America, Romance and Reality. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation And this broadcast is made possible by a grant from the Twin Cities Law Firm of Lindquist and Venom. Ms. Allende, if you would return to the podium, we will begin the period of questions. You were writing a letter to your grandfather which became the novel, The House of the Spirits. When did you realize that the letter was taking the form of something else, that it was turning into a novel?
1: I think that I realized that from the very beginning because um, I opened the, the letter with a sentence. The sentence is, Barabbas came to us by sea. I knew who Barabbas was. He was a dog that we had when I was little a grand dame that looked like a horse. And uh, so I, I knew that I was going to tell about him, but, but I didn't know anything else. And very soon, the characters took over, the, the story went wild. And, and I had no control over it, it just came out. And I knew it was somehow fiction. So I think very soon I realized that it wasn't a letter for my grandfather. But I went on writing. For a year at night in the kitchen of my apartment in Caracas, and this is like a magic book. It became one of those incredible success stories, and now that we have the movie, with all this incredible cast, we have Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, Meryl Streep, Winona Ryder, Vanessa Redgrave, Antonio Banderas—you name them—they are all there except Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and. This book has replaced the story of my family. This fiction now is the real story of my grandmother and my grandfather. I know that in a few months, the photographs of Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons will be on the piano instead of my (laughs) grandparents.
0: A question, a comment, and then a question. A member of the audience says, I want to say that House of Spirits, the House of the Spirits, is the most magical book I have ever read. Do you have any observation regarding the book being made into a movie? Would you like to say a little bit more about that?
1: I have absolutely no objection. I mean, I feel flattered that these people would, would invest this talent, money, time in my story. And although it's very different in some aspects from the book, it works and it doesn't compete with the book. I think, for me, this is a win-win situation. If the movie is lousy, no one will blame the book. And uh, if it's good, people will buy the book. So uh, it's great.
0: Another question from the audience. What obstacles did you, as an author with a voice which differed from the white male mainstream, have to overcome in order to get published? Uh,
1: It was difficult at the beginning. Uh, The House of the Spirits, um, I offered the book in some publishing houses in Latin America no one wanted even to read it. Finally, it was published in Barcelona and um, it became translated, reviewed, studied in Europe before it was ever published in Latin America. So it was difficult at the beginning and I, I find it still difficult to, to, to get the kind of recognition that, um, that I get, for example, in the United States or in Europe. I don't get that in my own, in my own continent. But, um, but things are changing, and I'm very proud to say that the success of the House of the Spirits opened the way for many other women writers who now are being looked after by the publishers. I mean, I, my publishers call me sometimes, do you know any new names, women's names? They're interested. They were not before.
0: Thank you. Why do you think that Latin America has produced so many wonderful modern-day mystic writers?
1: Um, Thirty years ago, when the great writers of Latin America got published in Barcelona, they created this boom of Latin American literature that was so well accepted, so well received everywhere in the world. Uh, They were identified with a sort of storytelling that was called at the time magic realism. Um, And it's strange because although many writers do not write in that style, or have drifted away from that style, we are all still considered magic, realistic writers, which is very inappropriate sometimes. Um, I think that uh, in this case it was a mixture of things that made this literature so popular. Politics. The fact that social events were part of the story, this epic breath that the books seem to have. Um, old-fashioned kitchen storytelling that was lost for, for some time. And the acceptance that there is another dimension of reality that we cannot control. Dreams, passions, obsessions, myths, legends, the overwhelming power of nature, all these things came into the, into the books. And these writers found a way of expressing all these things in a believable form. For me, it was easy to follow the path because it had been paved by them.
0: Thank you. Do you feel ever that the political concern of your books sometimes prevents readers and reviewers from reading your books as fully as they can be read?
1: To be called a political writer in this country when you are writing fiction is practically an insult. You should not deal with that. And the critics don't like it. However, the readers do. And uh, um, in in the case of Latin American literature, dealing with politics is unavoidable. We have to do it because this this affects our everyday life in such a way that we can't ignore it. And in, in my personal history, it changed my life, the political uh, cataclysm of my country. After a long, long democracy, we had a military coup in 19, 1973 that forced, um, forced my life in a direction that was quite unexpected. That marked me as a human being, and I think that from that separation from my country and from my family and from everything that was dear to me, comes all the writing. It's like trying to recover the roots that I lost.
0: Thank you. There's a follow-up question. When, when were you last in Chile and are your books circulated there?
1: Um, I, did, I went back to Chile for the first time in 1988 because there was a plebiscite. In that plebiscite, um, uh, uh, General Pinochet was um, defeated and he was forced to call elections the next year. So I went back in 1989, and I tried to go back every year. Now I'm going on Saturday again. My books were banned at the beginning, the House of the Spirits only. But then uh, censorship for books was eliminated, and um, at the beginning it was sold under the counter, but now it's very popular and everybody has read it. It's not published in Chile, but Sudamericana in Argentina sells the book in, in Chile.
0: Do you think of yourself as an exile? Did you ever identify yourself that way? If you don't but did, when and why did you stop thinking of yourself as an exile?
1: I have, I'm a privileged exile because I left my country uh, on my own decision. When I felt threatened, I I still had my passport and I left in 24 hours and I could choose the country where I went. I went to Venezuela. other um, other refugees or exiles don't get a choice. They just end up in the most unexpected places. I I do think that I am an exile because I would have never left my country without the fear that forced me to leave. It's very hard to make the decision of leaving behind a country like Chile. It's, um, It's a place that is very isolated from the rest of the world and you feel that you belong in a community, that without that community, you are nobody. The only way that you can survive is with, is with your roots in that place. So Chileans make terrible travelers and terrible exiles and refugees. They're always looking south. They, they can never adjust. What was the other part of the question? Uh, let me ah. get it. Huh? <laughs> uh,
0: if you, did you ever think of yourself as an exile if you don't, but did? When and why did you stop thinking of yourself? Well,
1: I don't think of myself as an exile anymore because since 1989, I can't return to Chile. So I, I go whenever I want and I don't live there because I fell in love with a gringo. So here I am, <laughs> the corniest reason. <laughs> I was in a lecturing tour, I met this guy and we just locked in. What can you do? Well, it's also true that I I needed a green card when I came, so that's why we married. We end up marrying.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) faced with faced with all of the distractions of the modern world, how can children be successfully encouraged to read and to learn to love to read?
1: Forbid it! Forbid it! That's how I read, with a flashlight in the closet. And that's the only book I remember. That's wonderful. So now what I do with my children and my grandchildren, I just forbid it.
0: We we turn literature into the forbidden fruit (laughs) and everything will be all right.
1: You know why the House of the Spirits was so popular in Chile? Because it was forbidden by the dictatorship. And so now everybody wanted to read it. They made photocopies of it
0: what new resources are available today that could be used to improve understanding between latin americans and the united states
1: i think that um, we are getting there we're beginning to know each other more when i moved to this country six years ago i had the feeling that i had a mission a small discreet and humble mission but a mission however it was I felt that that I could bring here some of my world. We are always complaining in South America of the cultural penetration of the United States, the movies, television, violence, crime, guns, bubblegum, Coca-Cola, etc And we never think that we can give something back and that cultural penetration in any direction is something that we should welcome always, because the world tends to think in itself in global terms more and more, and culture is what will bring people together, not the bankers or the generals or the politicians it's It's art that will do it and i 'm very privileged because my books are published in english, and i 'm here talking to you. So I feel that I have uh, an obligation to bring part of that world here i 'm not the only one more and more people are doing it more and more. Um, North Americans are going south, NAFTA may, may help, so I think it's going to happen. All these this tall, blonde people, it works, amazingly. And um, it's funny because it's German money, filmed in Portugal and Denmark, with a Danish director, an Anglo-Saxon cast, and spoken in English, and it looks Latin American. It's very strange.
0: You deliberately uh, you selected the Scandinavian director, would you like to say a word about that? Only
1: the Scandinavian director because uh, i didn 't want the, the book to be made into a movie. I had been in touch with some Hollywood producers and i was I felt very uncomfortable. Those people are sharks and, and um, I had the, the feeling the, the feeling that they wanted the option for the movie, not because they wanted to make it but because they wanted to um, They wanted to uh, have no one else do it, and stop somebody else from doing it. That was their idea. No one had a vision of the movie. They really didn't want it. And then Billy August appeared, and he was a very understated, um, calm person who didn't promise anything, who didn't uh, offer anything, but he had a vision of the book, and a vision of how he could make the movie. I thought that he was going to make a sort of art movie with low budget in in Denmark. And then this thing happened. That's very I wasn't prepared for this. If you would see all the hype there is around the movie, I have been writing for twelve years and now is that I'm getting attention because of the movie. Everybody's calling me now. And the first question is, how is Antonio Banderas? <laughs> That's the first Well, he's not the sweating macho that you see on the screen. He's a very nice guy.
0: Who are your favorite authors and uh, your favorite stories or books?
1: I am my favorite authors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Moving right along. The uh, dedication of your 1988 novel, *Eveluna* reads to my mother who gave me a love of stories um, and the question is is your mother still your foremost reader critic and collaborator in, in the writing of your novels
1: yes unfortunately <laughs> um, my mother is a wonderful person uh... she's seventy three and she's getting m- more and more intelligent with age and brighter and, and more liberal and passionate my mother is great and um, She's right now in my house, in San Rafael, correcting my last uh, book. She, when I finish a book, she, I send it to her to Chile by mail. And she reads it, takes a red pencil, gets on the first flight, and comes over. And we lock ourselves in the dining room and fight for at least a month. <laughs> we, we fight a lot and I don't give her the whole manuscript. It has been censored. I take out all the sex scenes. (laughs) Because if she would read them before, that would be awful. And I also take out everything that has to do with the Catholic Church. She doesn't like that either.
0: We'll be sending your mother a tape of this. uh, The question is, do you, do you write or think in Spanish or English or both?
1: I, I write in Spanish. I write fiction in Spanish. I can now write letters in English, but not fiction. Fiction is something that happens in the womb, not in the mind. I can't translate it. Uh, if I started writing in English, I would need all this help, dictionaries, and things that, that in Spanish I don't need because it grows inside me. It's like making love. I would feel ridiculous panting in English. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pastor. <laughs>
0: here's one for you. Can you can here's one that you may or may not want to answer. <laughs> but you probably will. Can can you can you tell us one of your dreams one of your dreams that has influenced your writings?
1: Oh um, Dreams are very important in my life, and they have, um, a, they have influenced not, or determined sometimes not only the writing, but my own life. Uh, now it's uh, a fad, you know? In California, everybody's into dream workshops, and they go there and sleep, I suppose. I don't know what they do in the workshop. Um, but it, I have had this all my life. For example, I had dreams um, when I was pregnant, at the time, you couldn't have a test done to know the, the sex of the child, but I saw the ch- that my children in dreams and I, they came with their names. So by the time they were born, I knew everything about them. I had seen them in several stages of their lives. And uh, my mother says that that is common in our family, that there's nothing special about it. But now, what I think is special is that I can dream my daughter-in-law's children before she even knows that she's pregnant. <laughs> and. Um, so I, I I solve things in my own life through dreams. It makes it allows me to see clearly when in real life I'm confused, and in the in the writing it helps a lot because sometimes I, I come up with a, with a solution for a problem that I have in the writing through dreams. For example, I have this dream that um, behind a closed door. There is a child that cries with the voice of an old person, and I know that always the child is my writing when I'm writing when I'm pregnant. It's the child or the other child, of course. So I, I know that it's my writing, and I know that there's a problems with the voice, with the tone in the text, that it's not right. The tone is not right. Other times. Um, I just see in a sort of, in a dream I see a scene that can solve a problem in the writing like um, at the ending of the House of the Spirits. I knew exactly what I wanted to say but I couldn't get it right. It was preachy, solemn, too political, too long and I had this dream that my grandfather was dead and he was lying on his bed. Everything was black except the white sheets and i was sitting on a black chair telling him that i had written this book and that's the end of the house of the spirits it's the granddaughter telling the story while she waits for the morning to bury her grandfather so it helps very much
0: thank you do you consider yourself a feminist of course <laughs> And if so, how would you define that term for yourself?
1: I don't know why people are so afraid of a word feminist. I think I was a feminist when I was five years old, and um, I remember the moment. I remember that I was sitting in the living room, and my mother was teaching me to, to knit. And I had these clumsy, fat fingers trying to put the thread through the needles, and through the window, I could see my brothers climbing a tree. And I thought, what a handicap it is to be here, sitting here, knitting, and at that point my mother said, cross your legs like a lady. So I had to be there, sitting in a very uncomfortable position, trying to do this thing with my hands, while the kids, my my brothers were up there in the tree. So uh, at that moment I realized that it was a handicap to be a woman in the society where I was born, and I had to do double the effort of any man to get half the recognition. So that is what my life has been about. (laughs) And I'm not afraid of the word feminist. I think that that being a feminist doesn't mean that you're not feminine. On the contrary, you are essentially feminine.
0: Thank you very much. We thank you very much for your once upon a time approach to life and for reminding us all of the life of the spirit and of imagination and of art as central to what it means to be human. For sharing yourself and your wonderful spirit with us today, we thank you, Ms. Yende, and we hope you'll come back and be with us again.
1: Thank you very much, thank you.